Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're going to look this morning at one of the most dramatic stories in the New Testament. It's a story of passion, outrage and shame. And I want to first of all just to put it in, in context biblically so we could understand it. And, and the, the great steelwork which is put together. So this is a story written by Luke. Now we know that Luke was not one of the disciples, so he can't have been there. And in fact there is another story in the other Gospels which feels a bit similar, um, but that's almost certainly a different one. This is one that only Luke knew. The reason he knew is we're pretty sure that the way he wrote his gospel was after the crucifixion and resurrection he went and travelled around Galilee and spoke to people to get the stories of Jesus and what happened and obviously he spoke particularly to Mary because Luke's gospel has so much more about Mary at the beginning we can imagine him sitting down with Mary, the mother of Jesus and just uh, told the stories and this is one of the stories that he heard and it was obviously very precious to the early church because it's been put together very cleverly and specially. It has seven parts and it goes into a rhythm. The first part is the same as the seventh. The second part goes with the fifth. The third part with the fourth. And in the middle is, is the parable. So it starts with an introduction and ends with a conclusion. It then talks about the woman's love at the beginning and comes back to the woman's love at the end. It then goes to the challenge to Simon and then Simon's response. And in the middle is the fifth historian. And often in Hebrew writing, unlike ours, the middle is the key thing. We tend to, if we're writing something or explaining, build up to the, the punchline, don't we? Whereas in Hebrew, the punchline is nearly always in the middle. And you'll see this when you read some of the other parables. And it leads up to it and then it explains it. So this is the sort of story uh, that we are, are looking at today. Now this is early in Jesus' ministry. He's starting to make his flesh. This is the new charismatic young preacher on the block who is doing miracles, things are happening. And people are wondering, who is he? What is this all about? And in particular, this Pharisee Simon, who was one of the leading figures um, in the area, probably felt responsible for what happened and what was taught said, I, I want to check this guy out. So he invited him round for a meal. Maybe he thought, I need to put him right on a few things as well, because he had heard some of this stuff about Jesus eating with sinners, which was something the Pharisees would never do, because they would feel that would contaminate them. So probably he thought, I just need to put this guy right. Now, meals in those days were a completely public affair. Not like our life, like, you know, you sit down at home, and if someone knocked on the door and wanted to join in, you'd be rather surprised. Well, in this world, your meal was at a shelf. You had it in the centre of the courtyard, and people would come who weren't invited, and they would sit all the way around and listen and watch, because this was a, a drama, this was an event. And they'd come, and they'd go. So that's what was going on here. So, this story starts absolutely outrageous. Everybody there has been shocked by what first happened. Because Jesus walks in, 
And Simon treats him abysmally. It's as though he's putting, putting him in his place. He's, Simon's making a market right at the beginning. I'm here to judge you. So in that part of the world, welcomes were quite specific. I mean, even for us, if you had a guest coming to your house, you know, you would say, can I take your coat? You'd, you'd say, where would you like to sit down? Can I get you a drink? Well, in those days, it was even more specific. You came in with your feet dirty from the road, so your feet would be washed. You'd be given a, a welcome, a kiss of welcome. And, and then you'd have some anointing on your head and hands. That was just basic, basic kindness. None of that happened. None of that happened. Jesus could easily have turned around and walked out. I expect his disciples probably wanted to. <laughs> But he very interestingly, what he did was he just went and sat down at the table. Now that was deliberate. Because in that culture, the person who sits down first is the oldest person. And then it works out. And he would have been the oldest there at the table. So he comes very calmly, sits down, and just shows his authority in the situation. The focus then shifts to the woman. She's been somewhere around the edge. She's come in at probably before he was there, waiting to see and to greet him. Who was she? We don't know. We have no name. We know what sort of person she was. She would be what would be called now perhaps an escort, a high-class prostitute, effectively. She would be someone who would be Outwardly very confident, undoubtedly beautiful, probably pretty wealthy, and definitely incredibly lonely and very guilty. None of the women in the village would want to speak to her in the town, and the men would only want to treat her as an object. She would have been probably the loneliest person in that town, and certainly one of the ones who felt most guilty because. In Judaism, there was really no way back from where the life that she lived. She would have felt that that was it, really. So she would have come feeling unwelcome, unworthy, and uninvited. I think sometimes we might feel we come to God like that still. Unworthy, unwelcome, and uninvited. That is what see with this one. We're all welcome, we're all worthy, we're all invited. So we need to use a bit of imagination now to get behind the story, because there's clearly a backstory. Because, you know, why did she do this? It's got to be a backstory. So just come with me with a bit of imagination. Jesus has been preaching and healing in the area for a number of days. And now crowds have been gathering, he's been healing people, he's been talking to people, meals. He's been in the area. And we know from the previous verses, he mixed with anybody. In fact, he was a friend, an active friend of tax collectors and sinners, who were the two most despised and rejected group in Israel. She, she must have gone to hear him at some point. Quite possibly she would have gone with a, you know, a cloak over her head, disguised, so no one could see her. She would have stayed maybe the back of the crowd and just listened. Something 
in what Jesus said. Something in the way he spoke and reacted to her began to touch her. Touched her deeply. Perhaps this was the first man in a long time who didn't treat her like an object and showed her compassion. She started to experience a love much purer than she'd ever experienced before. And amazingly, an acceptance, even of her and her background, started to settle as she listened, as she watched him. We don't know if she ever spoke to Jesus. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. But she encountered forgiveness. For the first time in her life, she felt, maybe I could start again. Maybe I could be forgiven for all the things I've done. Maybe even my inside could be healed and cleansed. It must have been amazing. Jesus' presence, his teaching, his acceptance had freed her. So she comes to this public event, doubtless at the back, with the intention of somehow showing her her love, her, her repentance, her gratitude to this man who has done something so remarkable for her. She probably felt maybe she could join in the welcome. You know, when, when Jesus was anointed, she could then slip in and just pour her alabaster jar on as well. Probably her plan was something like that. We don't know. But we know that her plan went utterly wrong. The fact that Jesus wasn't welcome just completely blew her plan out of the water. And we can only guess that she felt desperately sad about the way this beautiful person who Frida was being welcomed and ill-treated and publicly humiliated. She started crying. Not just a tear, but she started weeping. Something in her um, because of the impact Jesus has had on her life, meant she started weeping. And because she'd already got close to Jesus, the tears started to fall on his feet. So this creates an even bigger problem for her. What does she do? His feet are wet. So she does something even more remarkable. She unbinds her hair to dry his feet. Now that doesn't mean very much to us. But I'm sure if we ask Craig or Debbie, they would tell us about life in the Middle East. <coughs> a woman's hair is something very, very special. In fact, it's almost sacred. And in those times, a Jewish woman would never uncover her hair in public. And it would be bound up until the day she was married. And the first time she would ever unbind it would be with her husband on the wedding night. So you can see what this woman was doing. She's saying something utterly outrageous and remarkable. But it's a demonstration of the depth of her love and gratitude to Jesus as she dries his feet. And then she goes on to pour the anointment, that expensive anointment that she's bought, as an act of worship. This, this by her, is an act of great courage. Great courage. Total vulnerability. Amazing gratitude and sacrificial love, isn't it? 
It's just remarkable to step out and do this in public. How did Jesus respond? This is now the second act, or the third act of this trauma. I mean, he could, he could easily, legitimately have, have either just said, well, this isn't quite appropriate, this is for the temple, for your worship, or he could have been embarrassed or just tried to ignore it. But at great cost to himself, he acknowledged that. Now, the reason this was a great cost was, as we read, Simon the Pharisee immediately says, nailed you. You can't be a prophet, or you would know what this woman was like. But of course, Jesus responds to him, and very quickly Simon has to realise, not only does Jesus know exactly who this woman is, but he knows exactly what Simon was thinking as well. And so Jesus stands up and starts to reply. And in doing so, he, he accepts what the woman has done. He honours her. He supports her. He starts with a challenge. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, we need to understand, this is very much like your mother using your full name when she calls you. That sort of thing. Yeah? When she says, come here, or whatever. This is, this is oh, okay, something is going to be said now. I'm not going to that was the terms that Jesus used. But he, he doesn't immediately confront Simon. He gives him a story. He gives him a parable. He draws him in. I think, I think there's real compassion here by Jesus, even for Simon, even with the way he's been treated. Because he draws him in with a story, a parable. And actually, this parable is the heart of what Jesus is trying to teach. In fact, it's the heart of the gospel in many ways which is why I think this story is so prominent. Our capacity and our energy to love is directly related to our experience of forgiveness. Our capacity and energy to love, particularly to love Jesus, is directly related and comes from our experience of forgiveness. So he tells this parable about the two debtors, 50 denarii, 500. We need to appreciate 50 denarii is a, it's a month and a half's earnings. You know, 50,000 pounds or something. It's not a small sum. And 500 denarii is a year's worth. So this is big money. It's also remarkable. Money lenders, money lenders know of tests. So Jesus is saying something. I mean, people will be going, whoa, what's going on here? The story is the punchline of it. And, uh, and Jesus then says to Simon, Okay, well, who would love the most of these two? And grudgingly, Simon accepts the answer. He says, I suppose. You can see the grudgingness has been brought to this point. Because he's having, he says, I suppose the one who's been forgiven more. It's not stupid. He knows this is radical. He knows this is undermining everything that he's been believing and teaching where the whole idea of the Pharisees was it's about keeping yourself pure and that is how you love God. And, the, and it's all about behaviour and obedience and doing the right thing. And therefore, the less sinner you are, the better, closer you are to God. The more sinner you are, the further away you are. And Jesus is coming right through this. And he, Simon begins to recognise this. Because our love for God comes from our experience and awareness of this forgiveness. The actions follow. It's not the actions create the love. 
the actions follow. And for Jesus, this is so central that he now rams it home. And this is the third dramatic part of the story. Because what Jesus says is utterly outrageous. I mean, it's like, you know, you're going to somebody's house, you're the guest, the meal hasn't been great. You can just stand up and point out all the things that were wrong with you. <laughs> so, this is what he says, and it's, he says it like a, a voice like steel. He says, Simon, you see this woman. I came into your house. You provided no water to wash my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. There was no warmth in your greeting, but from the moment I came in, she has not stopped covering my feet with kisses. You gave me no oil for my head, but she put perfume on my feet. That is why, Simon, I tell you, her sins, many as they are, are forgiven, for he has shown so much love. But the man who has little to be forgiven has only a little to love. I'm sure. A man who has only a little to be forgiven has only a little to love. Jesus ran out of his head because it is so key to the gospel and to our lives. Neither of them would ever have forgotten that evening, nor would anybody else that I think have ever forgotten that evening. It was so dramatic, so outrageous, and yet the message at the end of it was so amazing. That there is forgiveness available for the worst of sinners, and it is out of experiencing that forgiveness that we love. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it clearly is saying that what motivated and energised this woman's worship and following of Jesus was her recognition of her sinfulness and how she'd been forgiven. It was gratitude. It was the fact that she'd been freed from guilt and shame and condemnation. As a result of she realised that as she, as she dwelt on it some love started to pour out of her those who are more aware of forgiveness love more I think this is so important in our modern world particularly because Freud who has been a major influence on psychology and counselling in the modern age correctly identified guilt and shame has been one of the most destructive emotions. Condemnation imprisons people. We know that, don't we? Guilt and shame and condemnation. We know the power of those. Sadly, although we got the diagnosis of the issue right, sadly, his solution, his remedy of trying to remove this was woefully inadequate. Woefully. Now, some of that guilt and shame does come from things outside that we can actually think differently about and reject. So in that sense, it is true. But fundamentally, we are guilty because we are made in the image of God. Made each of us here, everybody out on the street, everybody, however good or bad they may appear, we're all created and made in the image of God. And therefore there's something in us that aches for purity, that loves righteousness. And we're all aware 
and we're not as good as we could be. And I think that's in anybody, even in the biggest criminal. There is that awareness, there is that conscience that we're meant to be something more. And Freud is right in identifying that, but hopeless in giving the answer, because there's only one place where all of that, what we call sin and failure to live up to things, is dealt with completely. And that, of course, was on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago, outside the city of Jerusalem, where a carpenter from Nazareth, who was so much more, was crucified. Amen. And in that death, and in his resurrection, he triumphed over sin, guilt, shame, condemnation, death and the devil. Total. There is no other place we find this. But there we find everything. That's what the woman was experiencing. Even though the crucifixion hadn't happened, she was beginning to experience the amazing results that as it says in Romans 1, there is, there are Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, I mean, we don't read the Old Testament enough, I think, but if you read the Old Testament, you get start to get to realise that it's, it's a lot about dealing with this. Our sacrificial system is about dealing with sin and shame and guilt and condemnation. And, and, and the whole priesthood thing is about a priesthood that can help declare forgiveness. And as we get to understand that, we get to sense something of the, of the enormity of this. Um, and, and that's why Hebrews is such an amazing book to read. Because in Hebrews, it starts talking about, we've now got a perfect sacrifice. It says, he is the better sacrifice who's made perfect everyone who is being made holy. We have a better priest. In Hebrews 7 it says, he is the priest who is able to save to the uttermost. And we have, as we're going to celebrate in a minute, a new covenant. Matthew 26, 20. This is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We're forgiven. You know that? We're forgiven. I do wonder sometimes, Maybe it's just me. I didn't realise much what I'd been forgiven from. I think it's an advantage in a sense the woman had. And I sometimes go to read Psalm 51, where David is, is being broken, really, by circumstances. And David is broken by recognising, in a, in a clearer way he's ever seen before, the sin in his life. And I think there is a place for that. We are, we are rightly very good as a people in saying we are not sinners now, we're saints. That's how the Bible calls us. But we should still recognise and deal and repent of sin. Because then we can know forgiveness. Like this woman does. And we can know freedom. And we can know no condemnation. And freedom from shame. I could go on. And if there was time, we'd preach through so much of this. We've been forgiven. The blood of Jesus. The better priest. The better sacrifice. But we haven't got time this morning. So what we're going to do is act it. Live it. By coming to communion. <coughs> so just in a moment, Daniel's going to come up and take us into celebrating this new covenant. Into f- this physical representation 
of what that woman experienced. A calling to mind, again, of what Jesus has done for us. A feeding on his body. Uh, a drinking of his blood. And a knowing there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's